Another pot of coffee is brewing and I have just finished my third cup of the day. I have to start asking myself, am I becoming immune to the supposed energizing effects of caffeine? Because right now I could happily go to bed for a really long nap. All that means is that it's time for the third episode of Not Before Coffee Season 4. Wow. I have to be honest, I can't believe I am actually in my second full calendar year. I'm not sure where the time has gone. Anyway, I'm your host Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, TV show marathoner, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and very honest caffeine fiend. Light the candles, get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening, of course. And let's get started. It's been a busy reading and buying week for me, and I'll be talking about the buying maybe later on. However, this week I'm going to be talking about a couple of books that I read for the first time in the mid 80s and reread towards the end of 2021. If I'm being completely honest, despite the problematic nature of quite a few elements of these books, they are ones that I have on my bookcase and pick up every few years or so, because there is one character in them I keep on wishing would get a long overdue standalone of their own, despite their own questionable nature. I was going to just select one book in this duology, but after reading them through, as a reminder, I realised that they were so closely related that talking about one without the other just wouldn't make sense. So here I am, talking about the books that actually kicked off my love of rockstar romances, though at the time I didn't recognise them as such. The books I have selected are Easy Freedom and Easy Connections by Liz Berry. The funny thing about these two books is that now, over 30 years, almost 40, after they were written, they have attained something of a cult status amongst girls who were in their teens in the 1980s. For a long time, they were both out of print, and I discovered that my hardback copy of Easy Freedom, due to the difficulty in getting hold of these books, had a relatively high resale value, and we're talking in the hundreds. Not that I'm actually going to sell either of them. Now, of course, they have been added to sites like Amazon in ebook format. So if you have a Kindle, Nook, or anything else like that, they are that much easier to find. I've already mentioned that the books have a somewhat problematic premise, and there are multiple moments where I, as an adult, wince just a little bit as I'm reading them. However, as a teenager, I thought that the lead antagonist, Paul Devlin, also called Dev, was something of a man worth swooning over. Oh boy, young teenage girls have very low standards, or at least they did when I was one. Before I get into the books themselves, I should probably tell you exactly what they're about. For now, I'm going to focus on the first book, Easy Connections, which was released in 1983. However, later on, I will also be taking a look at the sequel. No more exams, no more boring holiday work, just two blissful weeks painting in the country. Then art college at last. Just paint, paint, paint. Kathy Harlow is a gifted painter. She is 17 
and three glorious years of art college stretch ahead of her. But when she meets Paul Devlin, lead guitarist of the famous rock band Easy Connections, and a millionaire superstar, her dreams are shattered. Dev is beautiful and brilliant, but with an explosive violence lurking just below his cool and easy charm. Kathy is attracted and repelled in equal measure, but Dev is determined to have her, and Dev usually gets what he wants. Easy Connections is a powerful and compelling novel, a love story with a difference, set against a vivid background of art school and the larger-than-life world of successful rock stars, a world where you set your own limits or live beyond them. The book starts out seemingly innocuous enough. Kathy Harlow is a painter, she shows some promise, and has received an early acceptance into one of the most prestigious art schools in London, She's staying with her older brother in a village called Nethercombe. He's called Jim and his wife, Mary, for the summer before heading to college and having not visited for a long while, she's unaware that the local farm has been sold and is now the home of someone who values their privacy above pretty much anything else. One day during the holidays, she sneaks onto the farm and starts to paint. When she's distracted, falls into a stream and strips off to dry off, rather than, you know, going home and changing, but that's neither here nor there in the scheme of things. She's caught by the farm's new owner and his best friend, who drag her back to the farmhouse, where they call the local police, in this case her brother, and essentially force her to stay, even though she is relieved when her brother arrives at the thought of going home. The whole incident is very much a power play, with Dev, the owner of the farm, wanting to assert dominance over this girl who dared to trespass on his property, as well as proving a point to his friend Chris, who seems to initially side with Kathy until he doesn't. Dev and Chris are both on the edge. They've just finished a tour of the US, and as well as being exhausted, they're surviving on drink and other things though at this point it's merely hinted at rather than explicitly stated. Having been forced to stay in order to avoid any type of prosecution or scandal for trespassing, Kathy is not at all receptive to Chris's charms. However, not to be put off, Dev makes a bargain with his friend and the tone of the evening abruptly changes. What started out as a day of art and sunshine for Kathy ends with shame and something that, try as she might, she won't ever be able to forget. Though Kathy does her utmost to escape from the consequences of that night, including moving to a place where she is sure he won't be able to find her, they are going to follow her, especially when she finds out that not only is Dev proving to be obsessed, but she's also pregnant and he's determined that they're going to marry. Both books in the series have a theme, and though they're definitely not morality tales, they do show the darker side of celebrity, as well as how well the tools they have at their disposal can be used if they are that type of person. I've already established that Kathy has set her life out. She knows what she wants. She knows what she has to do in order to get it. And for a while, it seems as though everything is going smoothly. However, with Dev on the scene, things start to go incredibly wrong. To many, it may seem awful when she tells him that she doesn't want anything to do with him, that she doesn't want the baby that is the product of a night she wants to do nothing more than to forget. But the comments appear to be water off a duck's back with him. She hates what is happening to her life, 
But more than that, she hates the fact that when she forgets what happened in the beginning, she's actually attracted to Dev. When Dev finally realises that Cathy is serious about not wanting him in her life, about hating him and wishing she weren't pregnant, he leaves. And it seems for a moment as though it's everything is going to be okay. Unfortunately, this is where the unscrupulous element of his personality steps in. He ties things up tighter than a noose, using the press to manipulate his fans and convince them that he's the innocent victim. Kathy is trapped. She can't leave her flat. Her friends have abandoned her and think that she should give in. And she loses the one thing that means anything to her, her place at art college. Dev's actions show the darker side of the press and the way that they can be used as a tool to show only one side of a story. Kathy is painted as the villain, the girl who wants nothing to do with the man who loves her more than life itself, the woman who is pregnant with his child. He does interviews, a press conference, and does everything to ensure that Kathy is forced into a corner. For a man that claims to love her and wants the baby that she's carrying, he's doing his best to prove that their well-being is at the bottom of his priority list. In fact, he says himself, he did what he had to do. He did have other options, but this is the one he chose. As a very naive tween, I really didn't understand the nuances of the book and everything that Deb was doing. I was sure that he was the romantic hero. He wanted nothing but to love her. As an adult, I can see him for what he is. And at the core, that is not a very nice person with way too much power. I know that I have glossed over one very important fact that I should have been screaming about from the rooftops, and that is that while the events that occur at the beginning of the book, meaning the assault that Dev carries out on Kathy, is horrific, the worst bit for me is the fact that every single person that Kathy tells seems to be justifying Dev's actions. Even her brother Jim tells her that nice girls don't, and they don't like it the first time that she was dressed like a prostitute and was asking for it. Dev jokes about it. Chris tells her that he would have tried the same thing because he could see that she was scared of their reputation. And her so-called friends say that Dev clearly loves her. So that apparently means what he did was absolutely fine. This reaction is actually rather sickening. However, victim shaming is something that has not gone away, even though it should never have existed in the first place. I'm not going to spoil the book because I don't like spoilers and I've said that several times. But at the same time, with this one, it's not easy because the sequel, Easy Freedom, which came out two years later in 1985, was a perfect continuation with the story beginning the day after the events that occurred at the end of Easy Connections. Kathy Harlow, a brilliant young painter, has at last given in to the pressures around her and agreed to marry rock musician superstar Paul Devlin and to keep his baby. But Kathy is still filled with doubts, for her art is the most important thing in her life and at only 17, she desperately fears being overwhelmed by Dev and his fame and money. Her relationship with Dev has inflicted wounds, which she can't forgive or forget. She feels threatened, too, by Dev's best friend Chris, who sees Kathy and Dev and himself as bound in a kind of mystical triangle. Kathy's struggle to overcome the stresses of her new life and her attempts to find herself and regain her lost freedom makes an unusual and compelling love story that leads to a moving climax. 
Set in the vivid worlds of rock music and art, Easy Freedom is a gripping story about redemption and forgiveness, and also has much to say about the real problems faced by a girl with a vocation. Now, bearing in mind that last line really does relate to the 1980s, not the present day. Dev has managed to get everything he wants. But for all that he says Kathy is his priority, he certainly changes tack very quickly as soon as the wedding ring is on her finger. Her light, which is what we are to assume he was attracted to in the beginning, has been blown out by his cruel games. He treats her like he would a drunken one-night stand. He forces her to spend hours watching him rehearse, on nights out with his bandmates and his friends. He treats her like a toy. At one point, she tells him that she's exhausted, that she needs rest. And as with every conversation they ever have, it turns into an argument. You don't love me, Dev. You love the thing you made. A pretty dolly in a cushioned box saying, da-da. She shivered. A corpse in a coffin. Dev got up. He let his glance move over her body, suggestive and insulting. He said viciously, at least I could take Dolly to bed with me. And walked out, slamming the door. All of their arguments have a similar starting point and a similar catalyst, that of Dev's best friend, Chris. In the first book, Chris Carter is there, but he's on the periphery. He's the one sleeping with the hangers-on, the one who seemingly supports his best friend. In this book, it's a case of the gloves being off. Chris is no longer willing to stand on the sidelines. He wants exactly what Dev has. And by exactly, I mean he wants Kathy. He seems to take joy in the fact that their relationship is falling apart as he watches, which, I have to admit, feels like a strange thing for a friend to be happy about, especially when he claims to love both of them. Anyway, with Chris always there, always watching, always waiting for an opportunity to make things even worse, it seems like Dev and Kathy really don't have a chance. Of course, this is made ten times worse by the fact that Dev blames Kathy for everything that goes wrong. She suffers bleeding late in her pregnancy, and it's not the fact that she is exhausted by Dev's taunting and use of her weaknesses to get her to go out until all hours. It's her fault because she never wanted a baby. As an adult reading this, someone who has been in a relationship with another person who made them feel like proverbial rubbish constantly... I can see that this is blatant gaslighting and Dev is a master. However, as a young reader, a lot of this went way over my head. Sure, I thought he was being a jerk, but that was as far as it went. Dev is on tour when Kathy has the baby and neither of them are very good at communicating. She is focused on the fact that the baby wasn't marred by the way he was conceived a very odd observation on her part, and Dev tells her that at least she got the dirty thing out of her body, harking back to something she yelled at him before they were married. It's as though he wants to make her feel like rubbish, and neither of them have any idea on how to make their relationship any better. To be fair, their relationship is just pure toxicity at this point. All the way through the book, I feel incredibly sorry for Kathy. She had her whole life set out in front of her. She wanted to be an artist. She wanted to go to college. She wanted the sort of romantic relationship that most girls dream of when they spend their formative years devouring sweet dreams teenage romance novels. However, reality is not that nice. 
What she gets is a partner who has lived, who knows how to manipulate, knows how to twist and turn things until you have no idea which way is up. Dev is an expert at making Kathy feel as though she's always in the wrong. When he returns from his tour, the relationship has already become so sour that if it does get fixed, she is going to be the one who gives up everything. He is outright cruel while she has the hope that the perhaps they could turn a corner. When he brings some girls back with him to the farm, Kathy walks out, and this finally makes him realise that she really meant it when she said she wouldn't take what he was giving any longer. And more power to her, because seriously, I'd have walked out way before this point. This is the point when the book takes a much darker turn. Okay, admittedly, it wasn't exactly light-hearted and fun before, what with the mentally abusive digs Dev takes at Kathy and the insidious manipulation from Chris, who seems to want everyone to be as miserable as he is under the cloak of constant womanising and drug-taking. For all that Kathy was thrown out of college and her dream of studying was taken away, she still has a contract with a prestigious gallery, and now that she is away from the farm and all the memories that it holds very few of them pleasant. She does nothing but paint. If the first book was a lesson in the power of the press when you need it to be used to your advantage, then the second book is all about how freedom is an illusion when you have ties that bind you to something. I know that sounds rather cynical, but when I look at Kathy's case, as this is Kathy's book, you can see that while she believes she has freedom, she still has a son with Dev, a son that she loves, and she is dependent upon his good grace to find out anything about baby Paul. She is a good painter, but access to the celebrities she paints and draws comes with the knowledge that they are Dev's friends first. The words to Chris Christopherson's song, Me and Bobby McGee, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, come back to haunt every single character in this book, whether they intend to or not. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose Nothing ain't worth nothing, but it's free For me, these books were a very big part of my so-called young adult life. As I reread them now, I realise that a lot of what happened in them went right over my head and buried itself in the ground behind me. Easy Connections is a strange fantasy. It's scary because the theme of rape and reform has not vanished. It is still the core of romances that are written today. Women who are abused by a man that is then somehow made out to be the hero, the man who rescues them from their dull and dreary lives. In Easy Freedom, you think that you're going to find the book in which Kathy finds herself, steps out on her own and makes her own way. But as she rightly points out earlier in the same book, she can't be free because he tied her to him as tightly as he could and all the time she feels love for her son, she will be never free of the bonds Dev ensured were there. Sometimes I think that as much as Kathy is trapped, Dev is too. However, that doesn't justify his behaviour. Every step he takes is another on the path to hell and he's being led there by the man who is meant to be his best friend. I'm not going to romanticise it and say that Dev and Kathy are Adam and Eve while Chris is the serpent, but the analogy is sort of accurate. 
The funny thing is that I can remember thinking as a teenager, the one story I really wanted to round out this duology and make it a trilogy was Chris's story. I wanted to see him find a partner all of his own. The fact that he was as much in love with Dev as he was Kathy completely passed me by. I'm justifying this by saying I was 12 when I first read these books. I didn't understand how a triad worked. Now I do. I still think that he needs someone of his own. But that's another story entirely. Before I get into what I thought about the book in more detail, these books have been out for almost 40 years. Wow. Does that mean my copies qualify as antique? Despite that, they were out of print for a considerable period of time, as I've already mentioned, and therefore, reviews on Goodreads and Amazon are rather sparse. They fall into one of two camps, nostalgic rereads or stunned new ones. Arlene gave Easy Connections three stars and said, I'm not saying it was a bad book. Not gonna lie, the first half was brilliant even. But everything the characters did and said after that made me so freaking angry and sad. Dev was a walking red flag and everyone else was seemingly fine with all the shit he's done. And you know, I'm usually okay with dumb main characters that are too foolish or blinded by lust to see the true colours of their love interest. But in this book, oh man, they were all dumb. The only reasonable character, at times, was a 17-year-old girl. While Walter's writing emporium gave it five stars with, yes, this book is problematic with the early rape scene and how it plays out. However, I think this is partly what makes it so great. We see people belittling her experience because he's a famous rock star and disbelieving her, exploring the rape narrative. She asked for it. People with power can do what they want. The reader too is drawn into this and implicated as we're asked, do we want Kathy to be with him and can we forgive him? For me, the answer was yes. When I type that and think about it, it's kind of effed up. Would I in real life? Hell no. I love Heathcliff and forgive all his misdeeds. Again, would I in real life? Same answer applies. That's the point with fiction though, isn't it? A compelling character can twist our morals during the time of reading. I loved this book as a teenager because it was dark and Dev is such a powerful force. It's always kind of haunted me. So much that I ended up hunting down a copy in my 20s. And now, almost 15 years later, I reread it, staying up until 1am to finish it. Finding out that I still love it. As soon as I finished it, I had to get the sequel which does deal with some of the issues raised in this book. Princess J recommended both books be read together and gave the duology four stars. It amazes me how, when much younger, I was so moved by Kathy and Dev's relationship in Easy Connection. It seemed unbearably romantic. A beautiful, talented, all-powerful man driven crazy by love for a young ingenue. Huh... This round, the relationship seemed unbearably unfair, a nightmare, a young and very naive girl in an emotionally volatile relationship with a powerful, predatory, charismatic stalker bent on having her in his life, willy-nilly. 
who casually tramples over her boundaries whenever he feels the need, and who has little to no skill in mature communication. And I realised this story was always what Liz Berry had always meant to write. Gods, what strange romanticism young girls have. This is no rosy story of fairy tale love, but the harrowing account of one kind of love relationship that exists way too often in real life. So much pain, so many opportunities to change course, to be vulnerable with one another, to empathise. All missed out, bypassed, because people were not paying attention to one another, too wrapped up in their own individual interests, when so easily things could have changed for the better. This book had as many positive reviews as it did negative. Most of the Goodreads reviews were balanced, with several highlighting the issues that I had when rereading, while the majority on Amazon were the nostalgic, I loved this book then and I still love it now, rereads that I thought would mirror mine more. Did I like the book? As I've already mentioned, if I were looking at this through the eyes of the girl I was when I first read the books, then I would be saying, definitely yes, I loved them. And that would be it. However, much water has passed under the bridge since I read them for the first time. And that makes it more difficult for me to simply say, amazing, couldn't beat them, must read them again immediately. There is no denying that they are well-written novels. They are very different to the standard YA stuff that was being released in the 1980s, as that was primarily Sweet Dreams Romances and Sweet Valley High. However, this was such a contrast to those books. Yes, we had every girl's fantasy, the rock star who has his eyes on you. But then this tale was twisted and became more of a nightmare. I'm not sure that I would ever class it as a romance. As a tween and a teen, this duology was my favourite on earth. I spent hard-earned babysitting money on getting copies so that when I moved to a different country at age 18, these were two of the books I packed in my suitcase. And my suitcase space was incredibly limited as I was moving for a year. I am not going to give my copies away but I do feel that what I read then and what I interpreted now has been coloured by life's experience. And these tales are more of a lesson in what to avoid than what you should aim for. Will I read more by Liz Berry? Liz Berry has not been a prolific author. She has released a few books since Easy Connections and Easy Freedom, including a novel titled simply Mel. I have read that one and it remains my favourite. It's based in the same universe as Easy Connections and the band, not the book, gets a mention close to the end. It's less of a story of violence and more one of survival, with the lead character Melody being incredibly strong-willed and emotionally determined. This book follows a trope that is very popular in many novels, that of the fake relationship, which is something I will be talking about when I review my next book, which is not Mel, just so you know. If you loved this, then you'll love Easy Connections. I'm not sure if there is a book I could say, pick this up if you loved that, in this case. However, there are a number of well-written contemporary rock star romances that may be a preferable pick. First off, there is the Rock Kiss series by Nalini Singh. Being honest, these are the books by her that I enjoyed. I'm not a massive fan of her Psy Changeling series. This one is made up of four novels and a novella. 
and gives us the ups and downs of our relationships in the public eye. They are well written and also tie into another series that is coming to an end this year, the Hard Place series, which is about a quartet of New Zealand brothers. Another book I'd recommend is one I mentioned last week, Page Toon's Johnny Be Good, the story of a rock star who plays around a lot until he meets someone who won't take his games. This book is on my constantly good reread list. I love Page Toon's books and if you're looking for a consistently good read, check out the 18 books on her back catalogue. Goodreads has been a good place for me over the last week. It's also been great for the book buying as I now have a further 11 books, physical books and nine Kindle books for that matter, in my collection. I actually had to purchase a new bookcase to house them. Earlier in the week, I started and finished One in a Million by Lindsay Kelk. I do believe I will need to invest in the rest of her back catalogue as they are proving to be incredibly enjoyable. Then on Friday and Saturday, I picked up a book that has been sitting in my study for about four years, maybe longer. The Carrie Diaries by Candace Bushnell. Yes, it is about Carrie Bradshaw, but in this book, she is just 18 and going through the heartbreak of first love and lost friendships. And all of that to say, I have read two books this week. So my count for the year is now up to four and I'm actually ahead of schedule, which makes a change. That doesn't mean to say I will stay that way, but I am definitely picking up on my reading game. I am also always looking out for recommendations. We're actually headed very quickly towards the end of the month and a few new books are coming out in the run-up to something of a February rush. So here are some books that are coming out in the next week that you might like to add to your reading list. Real Easy by Marie Rutkowski comes out on the 18th of January. It's a gritty thriller based in 1999 in the world of adult entertainment. The main character is a stripper. 30 Things I Love About Myself by Radhika Sangani is released on the 20th of January, a story all about self-discovery and learning to love the person you are. I've actually just added this one to my Amazon wish list. If you love short story collections, then the unusually titled Send Nudes by Saba Sams is also released on the 20th and contains a series of short stories about the ebb and flow of girlhood. With the byline, an ode to the woman you drunkenly befriend in club toilets, it sounds intriguing. Last on the list for now is the latest release from Chilean best-selling author Isabel Allende. Violetta is released on the 25th of January. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? If I'm being honest, they are not the best. Yes, I have been reading a lot. Yes, I have been busy doing many of the things that I really enjoy. But beneath it all, I am absolutely exhausted. I've been battling the tiredness for the last couple of weeks and I was so hopeful that I would get my normal B12 injection and my energy levels would be back to normal in a couple of days. Unfortunately, that has not proven to be the case in this instance. I have now had a load of blood tests and have to wait for the results to find out what's wrong. All of the above has led to a rather stressful week. Am I worried? 
Not much, because I, unlike many, have a very good and conscientious GP, which is very rare in this day and age if my family's feedback on their own doctors is anything to go by. What I am is fed up with being so tired. I barely have the energy to do anything. Feeling this tired actually, strangely, takes me back to the breakdown I had when I was in my very late 20s. I was experiencing a tough time at the offices where I was working and there was this one particular member of staff, we'll call her Julie to maintain her anonymity even though she doesn't deserve it, who did her utmost to make my life as hellish as possible. For some reason she had taken against me when she joined the department I was part of. She was great friends with the head of HR and this made things all the more difficult when it came to making a report about her bullish and bullying behaviour. My desk was outside her office, so she was privy to everything that happened by my desk. She complained about the sound of my keyboard when I was typing up reports and articles. She complained that I sounded too happy when I answered the phone. She complained when I took my lunch at 1pm. Seriously. And worse than all of that, she made subtle digs about my appearance, my weight, height, hair, everything, on a very regular basis. So I made a complaint. I was told that I was being petty, that Julie was just settling in and it was her way. Uh Uh-huh, her way was simply being a nightmare to those she believed were beneath her. After six months of this treatment, I was struggling in every other aspect of my life. I was having constant nightmares when I could sleep. I was always tired, always tearful, and the thought of going into the office filled me with so much dread that when I got there, I spent a considerable amount of time in the toilets crying and considering my options. It was genuinely awful. After months of this, I woke up one Monday morning and called in sick with a stomach bug. Did I have one? No. Though I probably had an ulcer by this point, I just couldn't face another day with Julie. After a lot of persuasion, I went to the doctors and instead of just flinging pills at me, I already had some thank you very much and they weren't doing anything to help. She put me on the waiting list to speak with someone. A waiting list that was six months long. Now we know why there are so many issues with mental health in this country when the facilities aren't there to help people in the first place. Luckily, I had private insurance at that point and money, or in this case, Bupa, talks, and I had an appointment the very next day. Over the next nine months, I went to a psychiatrist, a therapist and a counsellor I tried about 12 different types of medication and slept so much, mostly drugged sleep courtesy of sleeping pills that made my breath reek and strong doses of antidepressants. And in the 10th month, they declared me well enough to return to work. Of course, they recommended a phased return, but my employer wasn't having it. Despite everything that had happened, a letter from the psychiatrist and my GP both stating I was well enough to return with various other recommendations, I was stuck back at the same desk, right in front of Julie's office. Of course, she was no different than she had been before, and part of me believes that she used her knowledge of my recent problems, because HR seemingly believed everyone needed to know why I'd been off work, to make things worse. This time, I was the one that determined my fate, however. I was not going to let her get to me. I was going to be the strong one that walked away. And I did. I applied for a transfer and when it was approved, as a vacancy had come up in a different department, 
I made sure that not only did Julie know that she was a cruel and vindictive woman, but I also raised it as an official reason for my departure from the department. I had finally taken control. So what am I saying here? My current job is going well, so it's not that I am being bullied or depressed. It's more that I have now got a much better awareness of my limits. Sure, it doesn't always work. I have had two relatively recent roles where bullying culture was a thing in the office. But when I was able to, I walked away. I didn't skulk or cry in the corner. I took control and did what I needed to. Did it mean that I was unscathed? No, as much as I wish that were the case. But I was able to make my own decision and leave before it reached the point where enough was actually too much. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Good Pods, Spotify or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs, on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast or you can check out my website notbeforecoffee.co.uk. Well, I need another cup of coffee as I have not had enough yet, so I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell. <laughs>